Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. The message is entitled, The Messenger of the Gospel. Paul the Apostle is in awe over the overwhelm, uh, I mean, aspect about all that God has done for the Gentiles. So he prepares to break out in prayer for the Ephesians once again. His desire was to pray that God would allow them to grasp the reality of what had happened in their lives. The first prayer of Paul in chapter 1, 16 through 23 was that they comprehend the riches of Christ's inheritance in the saints and the exceeding greatness of his power towards them. The second prayer of Paul here in chapter 3, verse 14 through 21, is that they avail themselves of the power of the Spirit, trusting God for all things beyond their own abilities. Commentators say that Paul gets sidetracked and goes off on some tangent when he states the word Gentiles in verse 1. And that what we have from verse 2 to 13 is a digression, a very long parenthesis. So we could go right from verse 1 to verse 14 and flow right into Paul's prayer. Since Paul is writing under the inspiration, though, of the Holy Spirit, this digression cannot be attributed to human distraction, but rather to divine direction. So, though some call it a digression, it's almost like Paul gets sidetracked. I don't believe that's so. And as a young Christian, I used to teach that also. But I have to remind myself that he is writing under the inspiration, so that means that the, the Spirit of God is directing them on those directions, not the very words, because we see the distinction between Peter writing and Paul writing, using their own vocabulary, but it's not that he breaks out of the spirit and all of a sudden he gets a little distracted. That's not what it's talking about. In verse 1 through 7, Paul talks about the important information about himself, first as the messenger of the gospel, and secondly, the ministry of the gospel in verses 8 through 13. Paul presents three pictures of himself as the messenger of the gospel from verse 1 through 7. A prisoner in verse 1, a steward in verse 2 to 6, and a servant in verse 7. All of them are illustrated throughout the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. What we want to do is look at Paul, the messenger of the gospel, which is characterized by three things here in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. The three characteristics are as follows. First, we have the anticipation of Paul in the first portion of one. Secondly, we have the situation of Paul in the remainder of verse one. And then thirdly, we have the administration of Paul in verse 2. The anticipation, the situation, and the administration. 
He begins with the anticipation here. Notice the Apostle Paul revealed he was going to pray for this reason. Paul says, for this reason, literally, for this cause, or because of what I just stated. Paul is referring to the previous section of chapter 2, verse 19 through 22, that the Gentiles were no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, verse 19. That the Gentiles had been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in verse 20. That the Gentiles and Jews in Christ as a whole building were being joined together, growing into a body, the holy temple of the Lord, verse 21. And that the Gentiles and Jews in Christ were being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit, in verse 22. And all this just coming together just blows his mind. He's just so overwhelmed because remember, the Gentiles were far off. They had no part with God. And all of this God has done for them. The phrase for this reason is to be connected with the verb according to the Greek grammar. The grammarians tell us, Lenski, the Greek scholars, and others. But the verb is not found in verse 1, notice. The phrase for this reason is repeated again after the long parentheses from 2 to 13. This is where the verb is applied. Notice verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees. The verb is held up till verse 14. The word bow, as you know, means to bend. Synonymous with prayer. The attitude behind this is in honor and respect to a superior, in this case, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 14. So Paul, the apostle here, reveals that he's getting ready to pray. The apostle Paul reveals his love for them in this. And he makes this emphatic, I, Paul, the same one who had been their pastor for about three years and now had been gone about five, but still loved them and cared for them. He's writing to them. The same one that called himself an apostle by the will of God in the opening of the epistle, chapter 1, verse 1, but did not let it go to his head. The same one who had already had given thanks to God the Father for them in chapter 1, verse 16 through 17. It's always interesting as a Christian, and you don't always know this and don't experience it when you're young and when you're moving, but as you've been around for 30, 40, 50 years, and you have begun ministry when you were young and you've seen others of your peers and you see that they were just like you coming out of the world and as time has moved on and they become perhaps celebrities or something like that, you, you are amazed of, of how far they moved away from people, how no one can get to them. 
Paul, um, he wasn't like this. He, he was right there with the people. The name Paul, as you know, we have noted, comes from the Latin meaning small or little. Derivative of Powell, to pause, to stop, to restrain, or to come to an end. Paul had been um, described by some as short, bow-legged, with a unibrow. Now, we don't have any picture of him, but that's one of the descriptions of Paul. A big hook nose, big unibrow, bald, short, bow-legged. This guy have a sense of humor or what? <laughs> to use this man so powerfully, so mightily that he's the greatest apostle. The greatest and the most influential man in the history of Christianity. Much like Samson, I believe Samson looked much like Gilligan. Now, some of you that are young don't know what I'm talking about, but look it up on the website. I don't think he was like Samson. That wouldn't give glory to God. You have a skinny guy carrying the gates of Gaza. That gives glory to God. <laughs> God uses you. God uses me. Something that you would have never dreamed of. Something that you would have, you would have scoffed at. Something that might have even irritated you in the world if someone would have told you where you'd be today in Christ. But it's God that makes the difference. The Roman named Paul, as we have noted also, is a beautiful reality of what happened to him at the Damascus Road in Acts 9. He was um, so big before his own eyes as a Pharisee of Pharisees making havoc of the church, number one enemy of the church and Christians. He was brought to his knees, seeing his sinfulness before God, trembling and astonished. He said, Lord, what do you want me to do, Acts 9.6? As long as we don't have any sense of common sense fear, will always look big or more important than we really are. But when we see ourselves before God, then we get a, a proper assessment of who we are. Insignificant. And from that conclusion, then we are in awe of the magnificent love that God has for myself who is insignificant. That he would die for me. That he would pursue me. That he would be so patient with me throughout my 40 plus years of walking with him. The Hebrew name Paul prior to his conversion was Saul as you know. Which means ask, inquire or request. What an incredible combination of the two names uh, in view of God's call on his life. Ask, little one. <laughs> that's, that's a good description that should be our own perception of ourselves, if you will. John the Baptist said, I must decrease, but he must increase in John 
The amazing thing is that even though Paul indicated himself to be the writer, there are those who deny that he is the author. <laughs> Chapter 1, verse 1, here to be one again, Paul. Many of these men have PhDs, doctors before their name. I don't know what they're doctors of, but they have a degree. The people had rejected God, as you know, as king in the days of Samuel, when they asked for an earthly king like the other nations. He gave him Saul. In response, Samuel said, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord Yahweh and ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. You see, God told Samuel, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. We have to realize that when people come against us or people don't say such nice things about us, that really the, um, the rejection is of who I'm representing, Christ. Now, if that whatever is being said is because I'm acting like a jerk, then I should take full credit for it. But, it's because I'm a, but if it's because I'm a Christian, then I need to make sure I don't take that personally. Unless I harden my heart and embitter myself and I start praying that they go to hell rather than to heaven. Because I'm sure some people felt like that about me before I came to Christ. Prayer is um, commanded by Jesus, you know. He said, men ought always to pray in Luke 18, 1. Paul said that we are to pray without ceasing, a total dependency in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Um, praying is like breathing. If you think you can do without prayer, then cup your, no your mouth and pinch your nose and let's see how long you can be without breathing. They're synonymous. Breathing and praying are synonymous. Prayer keeps us from losing heart. Jesus said men are always to pray and not lose heart in Luke 18, 1, the second portion. Reverse it. If we faint, it's because we are not praying. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit is important. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, Ephesians 6, 18, at the close of the epistle tells us. So the focus is others, not just ourselves. Paul is praying for the Ephesians. He finishes the same way. Prayer will open my eyes so that you and I don't have to trust what we see. If I get too caught up on what I see and what I hear, apart from saturating my mind and my heart with God's word and waiting upon God, I, I can be like a chicken with my head cut off real quick. I, I can become very disturbed. 
Prayer protects us against anxiety then. Matthew six twenty five through 34, Jesus said that we're not to worry about the things of life, but to learn from the birds and the lilies of the field as God provides for them, how much more for us. If you walk with God for a set amount of years, then you've, you've been a personal witness to his faithfulness to provide for you. Some of you more than others. But as a Christian, he has been faithful so much more than we were ever faithful without Christ. Because we wasted most of the things we had before Christ. The scripture says that I have never seen God's people forsaken or begging for bread. Amazing. Paul taught that we are to be anxious for nothing but in all things by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving to make our request known to God in Philippians 4, 6. All is to be brought to God. In prayer, from the smallest to the biggest things, there is nothing that should be excluded from prayer. Because we never know how God wants to use it, when he wants to use it, or if he wants to use it, or if it's of him, or if it's of me. So prayer really is like a big sifter. You throw the stuff in there and... What goes through, it's God, and what is left and is not doesn't go through the scepter, you throw it out. He confirms these things. Paul declared that the result of prayer is the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Guarding our hearts and our minds through Christ Jesus in Philippians 4, 7. I think back to the purchase of this building with 300 people. Not a very logical and rational decision. I think of the building of the gym. And yet God gave us the peace and he demonstrated it was him that was leading and directing us through prayer. There was no pressure. There's no begging. There's no prodding. There's no sad stories. So... We didn't make a big deal about it because we're God's people. We should be expecting these things and they should be no big deal for us, right? It's just the way God does things. So we go to him so we can align ourselves with his will, with his direction. We, we don't want to say, Lord, we're going to do this. Bless it. We want to say, Lord, what do you want us to do so we can see you bless? That, that's, that's the proper perspective. Prayers in order to see God work. Listen to Jeremiah 33. 3. Call on me and I will answer you. And I will show you great and mighty things which you do not know. <laughs> Maybe we don't go to prayer because we think we know. But we really don't know. We just think we know. Our confidence and direction is to be in God alone. Jesus said, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors to the harvest in Matthew 9, 38. 
So as we pray, God will send us. God will speak to us. Two ears, one mouth. The rest will speak for itself. So the anticipation of Paul was prayer. As we follow the flow. But Paul wasn't scattered brain. <laughs> He's writing under inspiration. This is spirit directed. Because the information he gives us from verse 2 there on down to 13 is very important regarding what he's going to be praying about. Notice secondly, at the end of verse 1, the situation of Paul. The apostle Paul saw and called himself a specific kind of prisoner. The prisoner of Jesus Christ or of Christ Jesus. Paul was constantly being undermined by the Judaizers, as you know, dogged him all the time, persecuted him as he preached the gospel and to try to um, um, convert Christians into Jewish proselytes. At Philippi, Paul was thrown in jail with Silas. At Thessalonica, he was chased out. At Berea, he was escorted to Athens. Everywhere Paul went, he got in trouble for the gospel. Again, we look at things a little different as American Christians. We usually, um, we usually declare peace and people accepting us as God's open doors. But the Bible always Describes God's open doors and ministry with opposition and danger. A whole different perspective. You remember the Lord appeared to Paul at Corinth and told him not to be afraid, but to speak boldly. No one would hurt him because he had many souls in that city in Acts 18, 9 through 10. And Paul stayed there for a year and a half and the church of Corinth was established. Paul was afraid. He wanted to leave. He feared for his life. God said, no one's going to hurt you. What do you think was in Paul's mind and heart? I'm going to die here. <laughs> At Jerusalem, he was nearly killed by the Jews. We'll get a little more as we move on. Notice Paul never calls himself a prisoner of Rome or Nero, but of Jesus' as Lord. Chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. Philemon, only one chapter, verse 1 and 9. He saw himself as a prisoner of Jesus by appointment for the furtherance of the gospel, as some of the Praetorium Guard had been saved in Philippians 1.12. To 21, the believers were, Philippians were concerned about Paul, the gospel over this night. Hey, I, what, some preach out of contention, some out of goodwill. What do I care as long as Christ is preached? Wow. But by the way, some of the Praetorium guards said, hi, they've come to the Lord. They're your brothers now. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of the Christians say, but there's no way Praetorium guards can be saved. Are you kidding? The elite of Caesar? No way. 
He was visited in prison by the Lord after his arrest at Jerusalem to assure him that he would see Rome to be a testimony for him in Acts 23, 11. He brought a runaway slave by the name of Onesimus to Christ while in prison, calling himself the aged and now prisoner of Jesus Christ and Onesimus, my fellow prisoner in Christ in Philemon 1, 9, and 10, and 23. Paul was commissioned an apostle to the Gentiles and called himself an apostle of the Gentiles. Acts 9, 15, and his commission. Romans eleven thirteen, fifteen fifteen through 16. Galatians 2, 8, and 9. 1 Timothy 2, 7. And 2 Timothy 1, 11. Over and over again. A very particular call, as we're going to see, that God called him to. God has called you to a very specific call. I don't know what that is. You should know what that is. Only you can know what that is. No one else can know what that is. Or tell you what that is. It's for you to go to God. Notice Paul the Apostle wrote the epistle to Ephesians from prison then. The implication. The occasion was that there was some false teaching at Colossae. That's how the epistle came about. Epaphras, who was the pastor of Colossae, came to Paul at Rome during this imprisonment to tell him of the heresy regarding the um, um, sufficiency of Christ for salvation, at which time he wrote to the Ephesians' this epistle, Colossians 1.7. They were saying that Christ was not sufficient. He's okay to if you want to have him as your Savior, but he's not sufficient. There, there's other things. Onesimus, the runaway slave, had also been saved by Paul, as I mentioned. And then he was also sent back with to his master, Philemon, with the letter of his own um, petition, if you will, by the hand of Tychicus in Colossians 4, 7, and 9. So he goes to Rome. This guy, what's the chances that, that Paul knew Philemon? And Philemon's slave runs away. Paul's in jail. Philemon gets thrown in jail. Something happened. And he ends up in the same cell. And Paul ministers to him. And then when uh, Epaphras comes and shares of the heresy in Colossae, he writes the epistle to the Colossians and to the Ephesians. If you, if you were in our introduction, there are many similarities. And, and then he sends them back with those letters in hand back to his master. <laughs> Amazing. As Paul was in prison, they allowed him to have visitors. Acts 28, 30-31 tells us. Often um, people didn't eat properly and died if others didn't feed them or clothe them from the outside. They didn't do much for the prisoners. Paul wrote a total of four epistles, as you know, called prison epistles. They're Christological. They deal with the work and person of Christ. And so they're called prison epistles. Ephesians depicts the body of Christ, Jew and Gentile, one in Christ, that we've seen seated in the heavenlies in Christ, the head of the church. 
Philippians gives us the um, consecration of the believer to the service of Christ, which is the joy of life in Christ. Colossians presents Christ as the preeminent one in Godhead bodily in whom we are complete. Philemon portrays a lost sheep who is brought back by the love and grace of God. If Paul had not been in jail, possibly we wouldn't have had these epistles. Now in Philippians, Paul says that was his next appointment. He was there by appointment. God put him in jail. Now when's the last time you heard that from an American pulpit? But you do hear from other Christians who are in prison in Iran, in China, and other places. The Apostle Paul saw himself notice as a prisoner of Christ for a particular group of people, for you Gentiles. Paul was not saying that um, he was in jail because of the Gentiles, as if they were at fault for his imprisonment. But he's saying that he is a prisoner of Christ for their benefit, for their good. He has just told them of their oneness in Christ, Jew and Gentile, one body, one church, in Ephesians 2, 11 through 16. He says it in 3, 6 again. He'll say it in 4, 1 through 3 again. Gentiles included Scythians, barbarians, male, female, without any distinction or inferiority. So you have the three categories as we pointed out. Either you're a Gentile, you're a Jew, or you're in the church of God, which could be Jew or Gentile. So those are the three divisions that God sees the world today. Jews that are not born again. Gentile that are not born again, or Jew or Gentile who are born again and are one in Christ Jesus. That's how God sees the world. So Paul is about to pray that they yield to the Spirit of God for the good of their lives. The believers are seen as blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ, as we've seen in chapter 1, verse 3 and 20, in 2, 5, 3, 10 again, and we'll see it in 6, 12. Paul also knew that he was in prison because he was accused of bringing in Gentiles into the temple area in Acts chapter 21 to 25. As you know, in those chapters, Paul had been accused of teaching the Jews that they were, um, the Jews that were among the Gentile, that they were to forsake Moses and they ought not to circumcise their children or walk according to the custom. This was the rumor. This was the slander against Paul. So James and the elders asked Paul to sponsor four men in their vows, shaving of their head and Paying the vow sacrifices. 
And they acknowledged that the decree to the Gentiles, they still respected. They weren't under the Jewish law. So you see Paul doing certain things as a Jew that would not violate his faith in Christ, yet he wouldn't demand that of the Gentiles for salvation. Seven days after that, the Jews from Asia saw Paul in the temple and they stirred up the whole crowd and they laid hands on him, supposing he had defiled the temple by bringing in Trophimus, the Ephesian, who they had seen with him in the city earlier. And so they almost killed Paul. <laughs> he shut the door, the temple dragged him out, and they just began to just beat his head. If you've ever seen a mob mentality, or if you were in the world and you were at a party or a bar or a, a wedding and things happen, <laughs> um, you can get pretty crazy. The news came to the garrison and the um, soldiers and the centurions came to his rescue. Pulling him away and ushering him up the stairs, he began to speak in Greek to the commander. And he, um, thought, he says, you're not an Egyptian? No, I'm a Jew of Tarsus. And he asked permission to speak. And from there, Paul began to speak. And he addressed the Jews in the Hebrew tongue, which caused them to become silent and give his attention, their attention to him. He moved on to share about his pedigree, his home, Tarsus, a Jew taught under the feet of Gamaliel, a Pharisee of Pharisees, persecuting the way of, to death, going as far as Damascus and binding those Christians in chains to return them to be punished. Then he told them about his blinding encounter and conversion at the Damascus Road. And his commission through Ananias. And that he returned to Jerusalem and the Lord appeared to him and told him that he was to leave Jerusalem because the Jews would not receive his testimony. At which time he began to inform the Lord that they knew him. They knew how he persecuted. They knew how he had just killed even the death of Stephen. But... Um, that Jesus would send him to the Gentiles, and that was it. When he said Gentiles, the whole place exploded again. Kill him! He's not fit to live! Well, the centurions and the soldiers just freaked out. What the heck did he say? Take him and scourge him. As they proceeded to do that, Paul pulled out his Roman passport. <laughs> soldier came and told the centurion, hey, this guy's a Roman citizen. You know that? Be careful what you do to him. So he asked him, he said, you're a Roman citizen? Yes, I was freeborn. He says, well, and he proceeded to say how he had paid his, uh, for his citizenship with a lot of money. He said, well, I was freeborn. <laughs> I got one up on you. So all the soldiers and centurion jumped back. 
So they imprisoned him there in Jerusalem. The news came through Paul's nephew that there was a plot against him. And um, so they took him down to Caesarea in the Mediterranean. Some of you have been there where there's a beautiful place. And um, he was um, placed there. In prison. And Paul the Apostle was then bombarded by the Jews to be put to death. Tertullius went down with the Jews and they began to accuse him, but they didn't succeed. Then there was uh, Felix and Drusilla who also were there and they heard the gospel, but um, they just played with Paul and made him a political scapegoat for about two years. And when um, Felix left, Festus replaced him as a governor. And wanting to do favor to the Jews, he, at the request that he might be brought to Jerusalem to be tried, he, he, he asked Paul, are you willing to go up? He said, no, I'm not, I'm not, I haven't done anything. If, if I deserve to be put to death, I don't object to that, but my... I appeal to Caesar. He says, to Caesar you appeal, to Caesar you will go. As a Roman citizen, he had that right. At that point, Festus had no choice, no more authority. He had to send him. But Festus didn't have any right charges to do so. He knew he was innocent. So now he's in hot water. So Agrippa and Bernice come down to visit him. And... Um, he begins to share with Agrippa. And uh, he says, I'll, I'll listen to his case. And they both sit there and listen to his case. And Paul lays such a heavy, heavy witness on these two, Herod and Bernice. Herod says at one time, Paul, much learning has made you mad. Paul says, I wish... Paul says, I have not, I'm not mad. Says, I know you believe. Do you believe? He says, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. Paul says, having this change, I can see him. He says, I wish that you and everyone pressing were all together as I am, except for these bonds. Wow. Herod told him, Festus, you know, if he hadn't appealed, this man might have been released and free. But see, God had Paul there. How does that work that God had Paul there and yet he was accused falsely and he was being held as a political scapegoat? I don't know. The only reason I know that God had him there is because Paul tells us in the scriptures. I can't say that about every person that's thrown in jail as a Christian. But if their arrest is legitimate because of being a Christian, then I have to believe God has some hand in it somehow. We hear of those Christians in Iran who are in prison for their faith. We have spoken to some of them when we were over in that region, discipling them. And you know, when they, um, when they speak about their imprisonment, just like I'm talking to you, they're real calm. 
Yeah, they did this, we went there, and this would happen, that. It's not like Channel 40. It's not like some of our churches that um, people just share their sufferings or their testimony in such a emotional, vain way. These individuals, they interpret a privilege to suffer for Christ. Amazing to me. Amazing. We as American Christians still have the freedom to preach the gospel. But we can see and hear the diligent attempts to oppress and remove our First Amendment right of free speech by the social progressive liberals. This includes the universities, the news media, and our political servants, if you will, particularly against Christians and Christianity. They're on the top of the list. The writings on the wall as we have seen America being transformed radically in the last six and a half years since the year 2008. Listen to what Paul says, Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. If Paul said the days were evil in his days, what are we to say about our days? We have to remember that this world is evil and headed towards a one-world mindset government that will be headed by the Antichrist. Where pilgrims and sojourners, Hebrews eleven thirteen and First Peter two eleven says. I have to remind myself of that every once in a while. We have been delivered from the power of darkness and conveyed into the kingdom of the Son of His love in Colossians 1.13. There was a radical and drastic change in my life and my thinking. And I live in tension, sometimes more tension than at other times. But I live in warfare. The believers in every generation have always been looking for the Lord's return and have paid the price for their faith, be it in persecution, imprisonment, and at times with their very lives. Listen to what Paul told the Corinthians. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding eternal way to glory while we do not look at the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen, for the things that are seen are temporal, the things that are not seen are eternal. Second Corinthians four sixteen through 18. You understand this more and more the older you get. As you first get married and you have 
your plans, you go to school or whatever it is, you find a trade, and you're trying to see how you're going to make your living, what you're going to do, where you're going to go, what you're going to be able to afford, and you're trying to get a house, this and that. And nothing wrong with any of that. And then you do that and you raise your children and then they grow and you have a little bit of breathing time. Then the grandkids come, they get married. And as you're moving along, though you may have more things and, you know, you may be a little debt free after a while or whatever your situation may be. And you're getting older, you look around and you realize it's nice to have this stuff, but it isn't what life is about. In fact, the older you get the more you realize some, some of the things you have, and if you have too much things, they become more a burden than a help. You might have a huge yard when you're younger, and not as nice, you use it and this and that, but as you get older, you got to work it. You say, you know what? I don't even want to do it anymore. I'm 75 how much time do I have left? Do I want to waste and mow on the lawn? The situation of Paul was a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Notice thirdly in verse 2. The administration of Paul is given to us here. The Apostle Paul Affirmed they knew about his stewardship in the gospel. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God. Paul by saying if indeed does not imply any doubt whatsoever about having heard. The phrase if indeed means inasmuch and could be translated since affirming the fact of hearing. Verse 2 through 7 is one Long sentence in the Greek, as we've seen already in chapter 1, the same thing. Paul is known for that. Paul's like one of those little kids, you know, and he's talking, and, 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 and he's just going to breathe. He just keeps going. He just goes. Paul is saying, I know you have heard. The word heard, and the root meaning of it is to be endowed with the faculty of hearing. The plain meaning is to attest to or consider what is what has been said. They actually heard it. The tense is the indicative, error is active, the simple past fact that they heard and the ongoing hearing of it in the present. The apostle had been gone already as five years as we said. There were those who had been there when Paul was a pastor. They had heard themselves from Paul and from those in the church. They had witnessed everything. Some had come to Christ now since Paul's departure. And they had heard it from those who were there. Some of you were not here when the church was founded back in 1980 at a home study with three people. But you've heard it from others. <laughs> Some of you were not even here when we moved here. Six and a half years after the inception of the study in 1986. But you've heard it from others. 
But that hearing keeps going. It's important that that hearing be told so that people don't lose perspective of what God has done. This is one of the failures and one of the key reasons why our nation is imploding and being destroyed from within. Because we have cut off the youth of America from American history. How we became a nation. Why we became a nation. And through whom we became a nation. You cut off patriotism that way. You slander history and you rewrite history. And you raise up an army to destroy a nation. Simple. And the most eager to do it are young people. (laughs) Young and dumb is a bad combination. When there's no foundation. The most destructive element of society is a young single male. If he has no moorings. If he has no stability. Notice Paul had been entrusted with the office of a steward in verse 2. The word dispensation is a compound word. Oikos, a house, and nomos, a law. The word means a management, oversight, or stewardship. It's repeated in Colossians 1.25. Again, the two epistles run very parallel. The word was used by Paul for the fulfillment of the church age in Ephesians 1.10. The word in our text is used for the steward who was wasting his rich master's goods to give an account of himself in Luke 16, verse 1, 3, and 4. He was called to an account. Give an account of your stewardship in that parable. The same word. The responsibility of Paul, notice, was to be a faithful steward of God. It is required that a steward be found faithful. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2 there. As a steward, nothing belonged to Paul. All had been given to him. A steward in those days, he just managed his master's affair. Nothing belonged to him. As a steward, he was responsible to dispense, manage, and to multiply. In this case, what God had given to Paul. Paul had been called and entrusted with the management and administration of the grace of God. The grace of God is synonymous with the gospel of salvation. He's going to call it the the mystery of Christ. In the next verse, the revelation. Acts 20, verse 24 says, But none of these things move me, Paul speaking. Nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 
Galatians 1.6 says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different heteros gospel. Just as it is right for me to think this of you, because I have you in my heart inasmuch as in my chains and in defense of a confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace, Philippians 1, 7. The gospel of grace. The word grace, as you know, means unmerited favor with the idea of beauty, charis. Grace was the common Greek greeting. It appears um, 12 times in the epistle. Grace conveys beauty and charm, giving joy to the hearer and the beholder. Grace is that which is undeserved without claim or expectation by which we are saved, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. By grace through faith, that's not of ourselves, it's a gift of God. Grace is the ever-flowing and constant supply of God to the believer, Ephesians 3.20, unto him who is able to exceedingly, abundantly, above all we can ask or think. The word in its classical meaning is thankfulness and translated thankworthy and acceptable in Romans 6.17 and 2 Corinthians 8.16. It's a very rich and broad word. Grace is extended to all sinners for God died for the ungodly, his enemies. Romans 5, 8 through 10. But notice Paul the Apostle confirmed that his stewardship in the gospel of grace was for the Gentiles. Which was given to me for you. If you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ, God is speaking directly to you. The gospel of grace is for you. The gospel of grace is not to make you feel good. It's not primarily to make you happy. It certainly is not to make you rich. But it's to communicate to you that you are a wretched sinner under the wrath of God who is holy. And that he sent his son to be sent for you who knew no sin that you might be made the righteousness of God in him if you believe that he died in your place and paid the price of your sin. And that that is the only way you can be forgiven of your sins through repentance. The whole gospel is to open your eyes to your wretched, lost, and horrible condition. That you might then preach the gospel to others. It's not about self-esteem. It's not about making you happy. It's about understanding how lost you are and then being found and forgiven 
not being able to contain such grace that you have to tell others. Wow. This office of great responsibility had been given to Paul at his conversion, as you know. The word given there means to bestow, granted, or supplied. <clears throat> the word is um, a participle, eris passive, we are told by the Greek scholars, a fact in the past that actually took place, literally, having been given. Once God gives something to me, then he holds me responsible for it. You as a parent, when you entrust your child with a certain amount of money or a certain task, you hold them responsible for it. If not, then you destroy your own child. Acts 9.15 says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine, meaning he's talking to Ananias, to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Acts 9.15. Very specific call. Paul understood his call, his commission. He never wavered. Paul only did what God called him to do. He didn't try to be or do anything else. This office given to Paul was for the benefit and blessing of the Gentiles to be saved by grace through faith apart from the law, to be made one with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, and to be endowed with the Holy Spirit to be able to live their new life in Christ. I think Paul best illustrates this last point. It's, it's given to us at the end of chapter 6, verse 18 through 20. Listen to it. He's finishing the armor. He says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am ambassador in chains that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Wow. He illustrates his own point that he's saying here in chapter 3. <laughs> Each of us are stewards of the gospel of grace. Listen to Paul, 2 Corinthians 5.20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf for be reconciled to God. Why? Because we know the terror of the Lord. We know what will happen when a person dies without repenting of their sins. They will be lost eternally. No one knows that better than a Christian. Each of us knew by experience that not all people are happy to hear the gospel of grace. We've known it in the past. We know it in the present. Romans 2, 14 and 16, Paul puts it this way. Now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us uh, diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God a fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma of death leading to death. 
and to the other aroma of life leading to life. So some that hear us, they, oh, they, they think the gospel is the worst thing and you know, they want to kill you. But there's others that God just deals with their heart and they open their mind and they, you're preaching life and they embrace that life and they're so happy and thankful for you. <laughs> so people are going to hate you or they're going to be very thankful for the gospel. But there's no middle ground. Each of us as stewards know the urgency of the time regarding the gospel of grace more than ever before. As we look to our nation, which I believe very possibly we're experiencing the same thing God called Jeremiah to, to observe the death of his own nation. And we see the coming of Christ for his church and the coming of Antichrist for the one world government. Listen to Paul. In Romans 13, 11 and 12. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. There will be everything and anything that will be thrown to you. It will be presented to you. That your flesh will want to obtain. And those things that become distractions or things that would take us from Christ, we must cry out to God and not go there. Because the night is far spent. The day is at hand. Satan never sleeps. <laughs> Neither does my sin nature. Bad combination. The administration of Paul was the gospel of grace for the Gentiles. That's the only thing that's going to make me stable, wise, and productive. And so we've looked at Paul, the messenger of the gospel. Characterized by these three things. The anticipation of Paul was prayer. The situation of Paul was a prisoner of Jesus Christ. The administration of Paul was a gospel of grace for the Gentiles. Wow. The gospel. What value can you put on the gospel? There's no price tag. It's unique. There's no comparison, so there's no price on it. Lord, thank you for your grace, your love, your goodness. Deal with our hearts. Thank you for your grace. We pray that you just continue to minister to us, Lord, in all things.
We love you. We pray for those that are here. You will speak to their hearts, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought you to be safe, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the Internet. If God has spoken to you right where you sit or where you are, you can accept him. A prayer of repentance is what God requires. As you see yourself as a sinner separated from God and that his wrath is upon you if you don't repent. But you'll also understand his love that wants to save you and forgive you, to bless you. If that's your decision, then you can pray right now this prayer of repentance. And he's going to save you by forgiving you of all your sins by grace through faith. This is your prayer to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. Accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.